Well, good morning, church. Glad you guys are here today. Hey, if you're new here with us, welcome, welcome, welcome into MCC. It's an honor to have you here with us. We'd love to have a chance to get to know you, to connect with you a little bit more. Easiest way for that to happen is that little uh, next step card that's in the chair in front of you. You can fill that out. Take it either put it in one of those boxes back there in the back or back to the welcome table. We'd love to have a chance to get to know you, get to meet you and uh, let you know a little bit more about who we are as a church and who we are as a family. Speaking of family, I want to give you guys who are members here at MCC just a reminder of what is tonight. Tonight, five o'clock, five o'clock. Last week, I told you the wrong time. I'm not good with numbers. I'm good with words. Five o'clock is when we are having our annual family meeting that will be right here in this room. There's child care provided for preschool kids and down. Uh, great event to be at, to be able to kind of be in the know of what's going on at MCC, to be able to vote around the critical things that we vote on here as a church. And for those of you who are like, hey, I am a member, but I can't be here. A little bit of details as far as how we're going to make sure you're still in the loop with all of that. Monday morning, you'll be getting an email that contains the video from tonight's event, along as a link to be able to vote on elders and to approve the 2024 budget. So that's all that business stuff. We're going to move on from that. Grab your Bible. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Start in verse 23. I'll give you a second to get there. Hebrews 11, 23, as you're turning there, a little bit of a wrap up, a recap as far as what's been happening here in the book of Hebrews what the pastor to this church is doing. He's talking to a group of people who are struggling with the tension and the decision to either press on and persevere in this faith that they started or to let go and kind of just drift back into what life was before Jesus. And so what he's doing here in this chapter in particular is he's helping them see how all of the heroes, all the encouraging people that they had in their faith as it was, all pointed to Jesus and the faith that they now have that's becoming. And he tells them, look at all of these heroes, look at what they did by faith and put your faith in the Jesus who all of these heroes were pointing to. We've gone through a few of these heroes so far. Last week, we talked about three at one time as we went through Isaac and Jacob and Joshua, or Joseph. And today we're going to talk about one hero that most of us, whether you're Christian or not, you have heard the name Moses. We're going to lean into his story today as it's put on display in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 23 through 29. Let's read the word of God together. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story, and I pray that we don't come to it and just go, oh, that's the story of some people from way back when, but I pray that we understand and know that regardless of what we think about this story, we are a part of this story. If we are yours and you are ours, this story is part of our history. 
And right now, in this very moment here on this Sunday, you are continuing to write your story of your people, how they responded to crisis, how they responded when tempted, what they did when the choice to hold fast or to let go presented itself in this generation. And I pray, Jesus, that we can be a church that looks back on what was going on in our own church history and learns how to move into a better present and future for us as your bride, your church. Individually today, Jesus, I know so many people showed up longing for so many different things. I pray that you and you alone will be the sole satisfier of those needs. You are what we need. You are our only hope. And today we pray that through the gospel, the needs would be met, eyes would be open, cold, hard hearts would be melted, and you would call one more home. In your name, amen. One of the hardest things about being a pastor and a parent and um, also a baseball coach, which are three of the kind of like defining things of my life as well as a husband, is there's just a lot of choices to be made. And sometimes... I don't know about you, but whether you're a leader in a couple of different areas, you're leading your home, you're leading a church, you're leading in your business, you're leading a workplace, you're leading a school, all those different things. If we're not careful, what can happen is it feels like the choices start to overwhelm us. And we get to this point where we feel like I can't make a single more choice. I'm done with choices for today. I cannot choose anything. We got there. All the moms in the room, they're like, can I have a snack? When are we going to go? You're like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I feel you. Um, but when it comes to choices, the reality is, whatever your lot in life is, it doesn't give you the freedom to not have to make choices. And I heard this quote this week that I want to share with you guys because I think it's so true. And we saw in our story today that every single thing that they did by faith was all a choice. There were choices that were made along the line, and they made them, and then the choices made them. Which goes to the quote that I heard. It was said, you make your choices, and then your choices make you. You make your choices, and then your choices make you. Parents with high schoolers in the room, that's really scary because they're making those choices. And even in high school, middle school, those choices are making you. What people think about you, what your peers come to know you as, what you even come to know yourself as, the opportunities that are now afforded to you are closed off to you. Those things happen because of the choices we make. We make our choices, and then our choices make us. Now, Anybody who's navigated through making hard choices or making choices in general, you know that some of the hardest points in life to make choices are moments when you are also making a big choice, but you're also in a time of crisis. Like the proverbial stuff has hit the fan. There's no money left in the bank account. You're sitting there looking at a positive pregnancy test. The doctor comes back and says, it is cancerous. Those moments in life when, when a crisis comes, you've kind of hit with this, well, okay, what is my choice in the midst of this crisis? And what we can learn from the story we're going to dive into today is choice after choice, whether it was from Moses' family or Moses himself, we get a glimpse into what does it look like in the midst of crisis to make the right choices to lead to heroic faith. Let's dive in. First verse of this introduction to this guy, Moses, he says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They probably wrote that. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. All right, so let's all get on the same page so we make sure we understand who this guy Moses is. I don't want... Um, 
Pixar or whoever made the movie to be the one who primarily dictates what we know of Moses. So let's make sure we get some good grounded biblical history and we understand Moses for really who Moses is and what was going on in the context here to really get the most out of the text. So last week we walked through a couple of guys. We walked through Isaac and then we walked through Joseph or Jacob who had his name changed to Israel. And then we walked through Joseph. Joseph was the guy who got sold into slavery in which country? Egypt. Good job, you guys. You're crushing it. He got sold into slavery in Egypt. Now, while Joseph is in Egypt, a famine breaks out and he gets risen up to a place in leadership in Egypt that it basically puts him second in charge to Pharaoh. Long story short, again, you can go back and read this kind of the back part of Genesis. Because of the favor that Joseph gets with Pharaoh, Joseph is able to save his family lineage. Remember, at this point, his family lineage is become the children of Israel, Jacob's children, a.k.a. the Jewish nation. So what happens is Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, takes his family from where they lived on the outskirts of Canaan, and they travel down to where brother Joseph has favor with Pharaoh, and the family relocates to where? Egypt. Family relocates to Egypt. At this point, when this relocation happens, happens, there's about 70 people in the family. So in the grand scheme of things, from Pharaoh's side of things, no big deal. Well, remember, this family lineage had been given a promise by God that they would be a small family or a really big family. A really, really big family. God was like, look at the stars. That's how many of there are going to be of you guys. And then look at the sand. That's kind of you guys. All right. So this family had been given this will by God to populate and to increase. And so they get to Egypt and guess what? That starts happening. What started out as 70 people, they're living in Egypt, becomes thousands upon thousands of Jews, Israelites, children of Jacob, living there in that land of Egypt. And by this time, as generations have passed, there's a new Pharaoh in town. And this new Pharaoh does not give one rip about Joseph and the good things that Joseph did. And he sees this Israel people and their culture and their standards. And what he chooses to do is to enslave this group of people. This group of people gets the thumb put on their neck by this Pharaoh. And now they are in charge and indebted to him. It is an oppressive and wicked slavery that they get dealt out as they're in this new land. To make matters worse, this new Pharaoh sees them as such a threat that he issues this edict. And this edict is that when a Hebrew baby is born, if the midwife, that's the person delivering the baby, sees that this is a Hebrew boy, their job, the law, is that they are to kill the child. Well, this isn't as effective as Pharaoh would want. The midwives probably balk up against this rule. And so he issues a new edict. And the new edict is that anytime a Hebrew boy is born, they must be thrown into the Nile River. And any parent who does not throw this child into said Nile River will also be killed. So Moses' parents, Amram and Jacobet, they are faced with this crisis moment. Are we going to listen to Pharaoh? Are we going to trust that killing our child is wicked and evil? 
Now, before you just hear this edict thing and you go, oh man, that's just a really bad, wicked king with a really bad, wicked idea. Here's what I want you to understand. Everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. And what's happening here in this story is so much more than just a bad king with a bad idea. What's happening in this king is spiritual warfare. What's happening in this passage is demonic. As there is infanticide to the Hebrew baby boys happening. When we were talking about the story of Noah, and we referenced why God flooded the entire earth, one of the things that we referenced there in that moment, and we cited this passage in Genesis that made it very clear that God said that he was flooding the world because of the violence of the people. And I showed you guys, it was, we were all in here together. If you missed it, you can go back in probably two or three weeks from now. But the word violence there in Hebrew is translated Hamas. Yes, Hamas. And the reason I'm telling you this about the story of Pharaoh killing innocent baby Hebrew boys is because if you grab your Bible and you go to the book of Joel, you can do this if you want. Go to the book of Joel. Joel 3.19. Joel's another prophet, and he's talking about what the Egyptian Pharaoh did here. And he says this in Joel 3.19. Listen to it if you're not there yet. Egypt, so we're Pharaoh and all this is happening. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence, underline that if you've got it, for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. So this prophet Joel is saying what happened in Egypt was violence because they shed innocent blood and they will be punished. That word there for violence is Hamas. What I'm trying to show you is that we cannot just be people who look into our Bible and go, oh, that's nice. I understand those things there. We look into our Bible and then look through our Bible and understand that from the very beginning of time, Satan and his demonic kingdom and how he's tried to perpetuate that here on earth has been setting up counterfeits to the things of God. And there is a demonic spirit working through a weak, prideful king here that is the Hamas spirit working against what the Holy Spirit would do through his people, the nation of Israel. And I believe it is the same one that is causing the war that's happening right at this very moment. Now, we see this story happen. We see these things transpire. And here's where we begin to lean into the faith of Moses' parents. What we see first is they make the choice to trust the plan of God. They trust this plan of God, and it's a pretty ingenious plan. In this passage, it says that they looked at their kid, and they saw that their child was beautiful. Now, we can read that and just go, well, they just see this, like, Brad Pitt-looking baby and go, man, we got to do something special with this one. Like, it looks really, really good. That's not necessarily what happened here. What I believe is more so going on is they look at this child, and they notice that there is something different about this child. I don't know if he just kind of glows. I don't know if he just cries less. I don't know what it is. But for three months, they go, we are not putting this baby in the Nile. 
They raise it up to three months and they realize we are not afraid for our own life and we're not afraid for his life. We realize that God's hand is on this child's life. And so they devise this plan. They get a papyrus basket and they spray some flexi seal all over it so it'll float and it's water resistant. And it's really tar pitch, but flexi seal is a modern equivalent. And then they float this baby down the water. You know the story? Baby finds its way into a bathing party. Uh, one of the women who happened to be bathing there is one of the daughters of Pharaoh. And she sees this baby and she looks at this baby and she sees in the baby what the parents saw in the baby, that there is just something different about this child. It's very likely that this same girl had watched dozens of infants float down. That as she's walking on the shores of that very same river, she had seen plenty of Hebrew baby boys and just gotten used to it. But something about Moses, whose name means drawn from the water, drew her to the baby, and she drew him out of that water. Now, Miriam, this sharp, tactical, older sister that Moses has, happens to be waiting in the reeds, and she's like, I know this is coming. And she hears Moses's, or she hears Pharaoh's daughter go, oh, look at this awesome little baby. And she goes, speaking of babies, you need to feed that one. And speaking of food, I know this Hebrew lady who can get some food for that baby. And Pharaoh's daughter's like, that's a really good idea. I don't, I don't know. I can't feed him. We need that to happen. So she essentially, Pharaoh's daughter essentially says, and they all agree upon this, that, okay, go take the baby to be fed and nurtured and cared for until he becomes of age where I can take care of him. And so this is wild. Moms, I think you would sign up for this deal. She gets paid by Pharaoh's folks to raise her own child, essentially. It's a pretty good deal. I think. And she gets to raise this child up. This is awesome. Now, this is this family trusting God's plan. Now, you've got to put yourself in Jacobit's shoes. She gets there and she sees this beautiful baby back in her arms. And she knows, though, that I only have so much time with this child. Which I would just say to you parents in the room, goodness gracious, you only have such a small amount of time with your kids. Please. There, nobody had to tell you COVID during that period of time, hey, just savor these moments because when they're gone, they're gone. No, she knows. I'm going to have to give this kid back. Where's the principle in that? It's that when you know how much time you have left, you tend to make the time you have now matter more. So parents in this room, Start a countdown clock to 18. How many days? How many minutes? How much time do you have left before they leave your home to go strike out as a grown-up? When you know how much time you have left, I promise you'll make the time you have now matter a whole lot more. And this family steps out, and we see their heroic faith on display as heroic faith delivers you from fear. They said, we're not afraid. Kill us. Fine. Kill the, we trust that God's hand is on this. And so they have this heroic faith in God's plan and God's purposes. And they say, we don't care what happens. We believe that God is going to move, that God is going to work. And for three months, they keep, I don't know how they did this. They keep a baby. Like there's someone in the room right now. And I already know there's a baby somewhere over there. Okay. Like that, that wasn't hidden. Okay. So I don't know how they did this, but they did this. And because of their heroic faith, they refuse to be slaves. Fear. It's essentially their way of saying, Pharaoh, you might have us on paper as slaves, but up in here, this is huge. 
in here, I refuse to be a slave to you and your will and your ways. You can issue an edict, but I have a God who has told me otherwise. And I refuse to listen to you and be afraid of you. I will listen to him. The passage goes on. A lot of time passes here. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, so that was Moses as a baby. Now we're at about 40 years right here before this comma. Moses, when he was grown up, about 40 years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, I don't want to get graphic with you here, but what's happening is a identity crisis. This is what it's helping us see, that there is identity crisis going on. And Moses, in the midst of this identity crisis, is choosing to identify with God's people. Now, if you know anything about what was part of the covenantal sign that God gave to the Israelite people, you know that that sign, for males at least, is this thing called circumcision. And I don't want to go into all the details. Google it on your way home. Don't Google image it. Um, But that, for whatever reason, I don't have time to go into the reason why I think that was his reason. For whatever reason, that's what he chooses. Now, where did Moses spend his first three months? In, In what kind of home? A Hebrew or an Egyptian home? Okay. If he's a Hebrew boy on the eighth day, you know what happens to him? Circumcision. Now, I don't know about you guys in the room. I've heard it goes up in frequency the older you get. Um, but most men, you're going to the bathroom somewhere between, at least three times a day, okay? I, I promise I'm not trying to be graphic or crude here. I'm trying to make a point to you. Moses grows up in this home in immense, just opulence, more wealth, more pleasure. I mean, anything goes. You thought you had lax parents in high school because they had beer in the fridge and they let you and your friend, like you have no idea what it was like to grow up in Pharaoh's house. Anything goes. All the wealth you could imagine. Sport were the things that would make you shudder, were the things that they looked at as entertainment. This is the home he grows up in. Now, counterbalance that with the truth and reality that he knows who he really is. And on the outside, he may be dressed in all of this cool-looking eyeliner stuff that the Egyptian people wear. He may have all of the gold robes. He may have all the fine-colored things. He may sleep in the most beautiful, comfortable, sleep-number Egyptian bed. He's got all of these things on the outside. But when Moses gets to an intimate moment and really looks at the skin he's in, he realizes, I am not an Egyptian. I am a Hebrew. And he grows up these 40 years battling this identity crisis, being reminded multiple times a day, I am here, but I am not supposed to be here when my people are out there being treated like they're going through what they're going through. And so something happens as Moses comes to this identity crisis, this identity of faith, of This is the question that's going on inside of Moses' heart, and it's a question that you have to answer as well. The big question inside of Moses' heart during that period of his life into adulthood was, who's your daddy? That's why I said he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. God's making it very clear. I was trying to make sure Moses knew who his daddy was. And by faith, Moses chose a daddy that did not make sense. 
at least on the outside. He looked at Pharaoh and everything that Pharaoh could provide and how Pharaoh could protect him. And they looked at how the father of these Israelites were letting their lives be lack of provision and lack of protection. And instead, he chose to father to follow that father. And the reason he did is because he knew who he really was. Which, at the end of the day, I said this before, I said this when we went all through Ephesians. When you know who you are, you know what to do. Our problem is we try to figure out what to do before we know who we are. Figure out who you are, and you'll, you'll for sure know what to do. And you can let the consequences, you can let the cookies crumble where they may. If you know who you are, you know what to do. So he does this. He chooses rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin, which I love that it said the fleeting pleasure of sin, which is just a reminder that at the beginning in in sin, initially it's pleasurable. Like, and if it wasn't fun or if it didn't feel good, you did it wrong. Like there is some part of sin that at the beginning does feel good. But the thing that we need to understand is that that pleasure is fleeting, If it could satisfy, then you would only have to take one hit. You would only have to get in the back of one car and do that thing in high school. But you did that one. And once that bell was rung, it could not be unrung. You would only have to look at one thing online. It would be satisfied forever. You would only have to eat one double chocolate stuffed Oreo cookie cake and be like, okay, I'm good. I'll never need one of those again. But that's not how that goes, is it? It's fleeting pleasure. And then we want to get it again and again. And again, and he says, instead of choosing this, I'm going to choose. I love the way this world puts it. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasure of Egypt, which you're reading this and you're going, wait, 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 wait. Let me track my time on here. You got Abraham, Moses, King David, King Saul, Elijah, Elisha. And then you got baby Jesus in the manger over here. How is Moses way back over here considering Jesus? Well, he wasn't sitting down going, well, Jesus loves to suffer and he's going to suffer someday from now, 200, you know, some odd years from now, he'll suffer. So I choose to suffer as well. That's not necessarily what's happening inside of Moses' heart. What the author of Hebrews is doing, he's looking back through and he's trying to show the Hebrew people the same way I'm trying to show you everything that Moses was doing when he was saying, I'm going to choose the harder way, the tougher way, the more pain-stricken way so that my people can be delivered. Everything that Moses is doing right there is foreshadowing Jesus to come. Jesus did not just come to suffer and die. He came to suffer and die and deliver you and me from sin. And that's when he says he chooses the reproach of Christ. That's what he's choosing. I'm choosing to suffer, to be willing to die so that I can be used by God to deliver this people from Egyptian slavery, all foreshadowing Jesus who would come and suffer and die to deliver us people from sin's slavery. Why? For he was looking to the reward. He knew that the real stuff, the good stuff, so to speak, wasn't in some pyramid, wasn't in some palace. The real good stuff was knowing that you were slap dab in the middle of the will of God. So he walks forward with a heroic faith that says, I remember who my true father is and I remember who my true family is. And trust me, down here on this planet Earth, you're going to be faced with this as well. Remember when we're going through Ephesians? You may not, but there's this really haunting line in Ephesians. And he's telling the people in the church who they were before they came to Jesus. 
and it's really not a nice name. He says, before all you guys got adopted into the family of God, he referred to them as sons and daughters of disobedience, which is to say you had a different daddy. You, you were not on this side. You weren't just sitting here, you know, neutral, waiting for God to swoop in and pick you up. You were all the way the wrong way. And what this shows to us and what this means to us is that now that if you are in Christ, you've been adopted. And since being adopted, you get a new father and you get a new family. That family is called the church. That father is called God. And the reason you get both is because of his son, Jesus. And friends, that's the gospel. The passage goes on and starts to get into some more of the things that we are somewhat familiar with. It says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, that's Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In this moment, Moses knows that if I leave here and if I go out, and if I flee from this house and I flee from all these things, if I follow this crisis of faith as it is being happening here in my life, then I am going to make this king, this Pharaoh, very angry. And he feels that pressure which leads us to another one of the things that we can learn about going through crises and going through moments of faith where it's going to be tested. When we're going through those moments of faith where it's tested and we're going through those crisis points, we have to believe and make a choice against the world's pressure. The world's always going to put pressure on you. What the people of God, the church of God has to learn how to do is to reject the world's pressure. Pressure to change. Pressure to rewrite scripture in order to fit what is currently in vogue, what is currently politically correct. There's a lot of pressure out there. Some of you guys are are managers, businesses, and man, you're feeling all sorts of pressure. Somebody sits down in an interview and you're like, "Uh, don't know how to handle this right here, right now. And And you start to sweat a little bit because you know there's a lot of pressure right here. I can handle this wrong and HR is going to be in my office. I can't, even, I can't even say it's nice to meet you, person. It's hard. It's unique. And there is a pressure right now that I think is unlike any pressure maybe we've, we've felt in a while as a church to go, what are you going to do? As a pressure for you to fit in and you to fall in and you to play the game that everybody else is playing. We were at a prayer night not too long ago, and Pastor Tim said something talking about the next generation that's coming up that I has not I've not been able to get out of my mind. He said, as soon as you guys start to figure out the rules, the world changes the rules on you. And I can agree with that. And as soon as they change the rules on you, it's pressure for you to bend and cave and fit into those rules. And, and, and what I would take us all back to is the unchanging, never fading ever pertinent, and really, really good, as far as I've tried to live my life according to it, word of God. And to go, am I going to let this revealed word of God be the rule for my life? Or am I going to let culture, am I going to let the government, am I going to let a country or society or a college or a school system define my rules for my family's life? And I think this is where we just kind of go, no thanks. We're good. And come whatever may, we refuse to bend and break under the pressure of the world. Now, let me talk about pressure. 
Because sometimes we can start to feel pressure and we go, oh, that's just Satan. That's just evil. I'm here to tell you, without a doubt, God will send seasons of pressure on you. Even if we talk about some of the clinical stuff we talk about, depression. I have to be really careful here because I don't want to say God is making you depressed. But I have felt and I've experienced times in my life where I've gone through seasons where I felt pressure, where I felt pressed down, where it felt darker than it normally did feel. And I know for sure that those were seasons that God was taking me through, that God brought on my life. The question we have to ask ourselves, if you are here and you feel depressed, part of your depression is a pressure from the outside that is pushing you down. It's all right there in the word. Where is the pressure coming from? Is the pressure coming from an outside source? Is the pressure coming from your own twisted mental dialogue, rumination, or self-talk? Or is, and sometimes this may be the case, is the pressure actually coming from God? Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. There is so much spiritual, mental, and even physical pressure on Jesus there as he prays in the garden that that pressure is popping blood vessels in his human body so much so that he is sweating drops of blood. Was Satan sending that pressure or was that from the Father? It was from the Father. Because hear me on this. The closer you get to God's promises, more than likely you will experience his pressure the pressure to turn around. It's the pressure to let go. And so if you're feeling that, here's some really good news. You're close. You're close to something. You're close to the promise. That whole Garden of Gethsemane thing, that was Thursday night. Friday was coming. It's three days away from the resurrection. It's three days away from the greatest event in all of history, the one that history hinges itself upon. Was there pressure? Oh, yes. It's because he was getting close to the promise. And that's going to happen in your life too. The story goes on. Moses, and the heroic thing we can learn is that faith looks past what's in front of you and it looks to who is with you. And because Jesus went through what he went through, we now get this promise that he is Emmanuel. We're getting ready to celebrate that all at Christmas. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So come whatever is out there. I've got him in here. I'm not afraid of Pharaoh. That's why I love this passage. It said, he looked to him who was invisible. It was, he saw him like he was visible, even though he was invisible. He's talking about Moses' intimate, deep, close relationship with his heavenly father. The more he turned his back on Pharaoh, his father, the more he came to know Yahweh, his father. Next passage talks about the whole Passover thing and spreading blood over doors. By faith, he kept, Moses kept the Passover. Really, it isn't necessarily that he kept it. It's that he instituted it. This is where it first happened. He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The them there is a Hebrew people. Um, To recap a little bit of what's going on in the story and help you understand what's happening. God, through Moses, tells Pharaoh there's going to be plagues. And if you read your Bible, it's really easy to think God hates the Egyptians and wants to punish the Egyptians for all the terrible, wicked, very bad, evil things that they did. But if you actually go back and read scripture, God tells Moses that he is going to do these things to show the nation of Israel that he is the one true God. And he says the exact same thing when he's talking about Egypt. He doesn't, you will not find a verse where he's going, I just want to kill all those wicked, mean Egyptians. He says, I'm going to do this so that the Egyptians know that I am God. Up until this point, the Egyptians 
worshipped a god named Ra, and he was the creator god. And if you go back and you look at the origin of Egyptian god worship, there are a lot of similarities between the creation narrative of the Bible and the Egyptians' creation narrative. In our biblical account of creation, we have God, the Spirit of God, hovering over what? Hovering over the dark, formless void, hovering over the earth. And there's they have Ra, and he is hovering over a murky swamp. And there's even some similarities even into the Noah story. And again, I said this a few weeks ago. Everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. He creates a counterfeit one that is just close enough to lead straight to hell. And in this story, these people had an animal that was the god Ra's animal. you have any guess what that animal happened to be? Goat. And the Hebrew people then take goats and lambs and cut them, bleed them, and spread the blood of those things around their door frames so that the final, the quintessential plague can pass over their families and can affect all of the Egyptian families. Now, this is a really hard passage. Because if you're like me, you're, you're, you think a little bit humanitarianly, and you're like, man, what did those babies do? Right? That's, it's hard to get fully on board with everything you see God do in this Bible. The good news is you don't get, have to get on board with everything that God does in the Bible to trust the fact that his son rose from the dead. If you can get that, and there's a lot of evidence for that, then your faith might be all right. Bible tells us really clear, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. But it does make it clear why this happens. God wanted the Egyptians to know that he was God, the one true God. And what he does is he tries over and over and over again to get the one who had set himself up as God of the Egyptians, Pharaoh. So in the grand scheme of things is the way the Egyptians think about God There is Ra, and then Pharaoh is Ra's middleman, his priest, who represents the order that needs to be kept from the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And Pharaoh is the one who orchestrates and organizes that. And so God, in a very tactical way, is going directly to the one who claims to be God there, boots on the ground in Egypt, and says, I'm going to show you over and over again that I really am the true God. Now, what's crazy, and there's some wild details in here. Pharaoh is not concerned that this God is powerful. What Pharaoh is concerned with is, is this God precise? If you go back and you look through the plague stories, when God allows all of the livestock to be killed that are the Egyptian livestock, Pharaoh's question is not, well, how did God kill all those animals? Are you sure it wasn't some weird something or another? You know what Pharaoh asks? He said, well, what about the Israelites' livestock? See, he knows this God is powerful. What he's trying to discover is, is this God precise? And what God is trying to show them through all of this, and you can go back and you look at the things, once Pharaoh has something happen, God is not just trying to show him how powerful he is, he's trying to show them how precise he is. 
so that Pharaoh knows, I am not just a powerful God, I'm a precise God. And if there's ever a God to surrender to, it's not you who think you have all the technological upgrades. You're the most advanced culture in, in, in ever. But I am the God of all knowledge, all wisdom, all technology. I am that God. And you either bend and bow to me, and I am patient and slow to anger. I've given you nine plagues thus far. But here comes one that is going to break you. And it does. And masses of Egyptian children die. And God is not to blame for that. Their God, Pharaoh, is to blame for that. The story goes on. We see the uh, whole water and sea thing happen. Um, shows us heroic faith, knows that the power is in the blood. It says, by faith, the people cross the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same thing, were drowned. This is that story. And I don't know if you grew up with the, how many of you, okay, let's, 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 let's see the age of the room. All right. Raise your hand if you're Charlton Heston, Moses people. All right. Raise your hand if you're Prince of Egypt people. My generation, let's go. All right, okay. We got a little bit of both in the room. We got a lot of Charlton Heston's one. Then we got some Prince of Egypt things. This is the story. Regardless of whichever one of those you watched, you've got this story in mind. And what we see in the story is oftentimes not as good as what actually happens in the Bible when you're looking at it through the movies. What you see in the Bible is the people cross the Red Sea onto dry land, and that's great and all, and the Egyptians got swallowed up. But if you go to the account in Exodus, Moses gets them all the way out there, and there are these people who've seen all these plagues, who've seen death angel pass over their house, they've seen all this happen, and they get all the way out there, and they get to this Red Sea. They're being led by this pillar of cloud, and they get to the Red Sea. And then what do they all start doing? They're, they just start dancing, going, won't God do it? He's about to part that Red Sea. Like, he's done all these things. Look at he's about to come through once again. They're, they're all just big faith moment because they've seen God work in the past. No. They're going, Moses, you brought us out here to die? You idiot. Man, why do we listen to you? Brought us all the way out here, we're all about to die. They're, they're coming. You hear them? They're coming. That's what they're saying. And it's as if God is just really ticked off at this point. <laughs> and he, he just kind of, Moses, let me, let me handle this. And God speaks through. And God says, I will fight for you. You only have to be still. Essentially, he says, <laughs> it's as if God, it was the way we do when our kids, when they're whining, he just like takes his finger and puts it all the way on their lips. Shh. I've got this. I'm the father. I've been working this plan out from the very beginning. Shut up, be still, and watch me work. He says, Moses, <clears throat> pick up your staff. And again, like all the things that they have to do in the story, look at how like simple these tasks are. Staff, water. Who does that? That's God's miracle. All right. And people start going through. Pillar cloud leads them right on through. And then the nature of Egypt starts to follow through. What does God tell Moses to do one more time? This is, it, he has got a stick on switch and off switch, and that's all the nation of Israel does. Which shows us, again, the simple truth here is heroic faith lets the Lord fight for you. It, it doesn't go, I'm going to do this on my power, my will, my abilities. I'm going to let God do this. I didn't send the plagues. We didn't go harvest a bunch of frogs and put them in all the Egyptians' house. All this whole entire time, God's been the one fighting for us, and God's going to continue to fight for us. He is our deliverer, not Moses. 
He's the one who delivered. Now, he'll use somebody to deliver us, but he's the one who is the capital D, the liverer. That's what we see him do in this story. We see the heroic faith lets the Lord fight for you. Now, I don't know what you're trying to fight right now. If you're fighting a mental health thing, if you're fighting physical illness, if you're fighting debt, if you're fighting um, being really angry every time you go to the grocery store like me and my family are, uh, fighting a lot of stuff. Some heavy. Some few. Some of you got a few really heavy things, and then some of you got a lot of little things. Regardless, who is doing the fighting? Are you? Or are you letting him? Now, what's unique about this story is God shows up in that moment. He says, "Let me fight for you. All you got to do is be still." And then the water parts. But what kind of stillness was God talking about? Physical or in here? If they had stayed physically still, if they're going, if they're those like, you ever have one of those kids who takes you really literal at everything you say? You're like, I didn't mean it like that. You have to explain everything. You have to explain it like four times. You got to be careful what you say to them because they're going to take it as literal as they possibly can. Like if God literally, if they interpret God literally and go, I'm going to fight for you, stay still in the water parts. It's like, God, they're getting awfully close. Tell me something to do. Obviously, what God is talking about here is not physical stillness. Well, some of you can get there sometimes. I've been there sometimes where I just go, God, I surrender this to you. And I just go. <laughs> and you know what's actually happening? The exact opposite of what God wants. I am outwardly still and inwardly Really nervous. You've been here? And then some of you in the room, and you usually marry the opposite person. You usually marry one person who inwardly is losing their ever-loving mind, but outwardly is like. And then you marry the other person who outwardly, (laughs) they're doing everything. And on the inside, they're like, I'm not really thinking about it. Here's, Here's what I'm saying. Stillness is a heart and a head condition. God never gave them an God never gave them an invitation to stop moving. So here's 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 what I would say to you. Some of you in this room, you're going through a crisis right now. Don't stop moving. Keep going. I feel like it's a country song, but it makes sense. If you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> it's a really bad place to hang out. And maybe that's Psalm 23 as well. If you walk through the valley, even though I walk, what's the word there? Through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's a valley to go through. Keep moving and go with an inward stillness, knowing that the Lord is fighting for me. He is clearing the path to what he is leading me to. Now, when it comes to to path and where we land with this passage. Um, I was praying through this last night and I uh, just felt like this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit put upon me and I wanted to share with you. When I look at this story, especially the crossing the Red Sea whole part, it reminds me of this simple truth, that where you cannot go on foot, you can go by faith. Where you can't go on foot, you can go by faith.
I don't know where you want to go by foot. Some of you, you want to go by foot down an aisle. I mean, the love of your life on the other end and be happily married ever after. Some of you, you want to go by foot to the maternity ward have another child or your first child. Some of you want to go into a doctor's office. You want to walk into a doctor's office and hear cancer-free. Some of you want to go and open up your financial app and see there'd be no debt in there. Some of you want to go by foot to a job you don't hate and dread every single day you have to wake up and go. Some of you want to not. Some of you want to be able to go and knock on the door of that relative and have them open the door and you sit down and you have one more conversation with them. There's places, everybody in this room, there's places you wish your feet could go one more time. And as good as those are, of down the aisle into the great covenant of wedding, of into parenting, of into financial freedom, of into physical health, of into redeemed and restored relationships. I'm telling you, every place that you wish your feet could go now all point to where we wish our feet could get to for eternity. Deep inside of every person in this room, there is a longing and a beckoning to get to one place. And that place is full reconciliation with your father. Ultimate connection back to the kingdom of God. The place where your feet really want to be is heaven in front of the Father, with His Son. That's where your feet long to be, and every little thing down here that you wish your feet could get into all points towards that ultimate reality. But here's the truth in the reality. Your feet, by your good goings, could never get you to that Father. And that's why that Father sent His Son to put feet on this earth and to walk this dusty, sin-scarred place ultimately leading to a hill called Golgotha where they took his feet, laid them one over the other and drew a nail right through them. And he gave his life there so that if you were to put faith in him, your feet could go by faith somewhere your feet could never take you. And my hope, my prayer is that you see through this story through the story of the cross, that it is only by faith that you can get to places that your feet really want to be. When we think about faith, as far as the Bible is concerned, I think sometimes we get it mixed up. We think that when it comes to our faith, it's all about how much I have. And we can read Hebrews 11 and it's like faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's what faith is. And we say, well, I got to have a whole lot more hope. And for many of us in this room, myself included, for years, I misunderstood that story that Jesus tells about the mustard seed. Y'all remember that? Jesus, I don't know if there was one on the ground or he had one just in his pocket, but he, I, I think he gets one. He goes, you guys know how little a mustard seed is? If you had faith this big, you could, you could look at that mountain over there and you could say, mountain, to the ocean, and it would move. He tells them about this Mountain moving faith, and it only has to be this big. And we read that story and we go, okay, I, I don't got to have big faith. I don't have to have perfect faith. I just got to have a little bit of faith. 
And so we say things like, oh, just have a little faith, have a little faith, have a little faith, have a little faith. Here's what that story is about. It's not about the amount. Here's what you need to understand about faith. Faith is not about the amount you have. It is about the object you have faith in. I've misunderstood that story for years. The whole reason Jesus throws out a stinking mustard seed is because he's trying to indicate to them, it doesn't matter. It can be this big. It can be as big as that mountain. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. It matters. Is it in me? That's the only thing that matters. And so what's amazing about biblical faith is that when you place your faith in Jesus, miracles happen. Primarily the miracle of you passing through the Red Sea out of sins, bondage, and slavery and into the care of your father. Hebrew scholars and theologians, they recount the crossing of the Red Sea as the rebirthing of the nation of Israel. And it's no coincidence that that sea was called what color? Red, the blood and the water that still signifies the rebirth that every person has to go through to enter into a by faith relationship with Jesus. If you're here today and you have not crossed through that metaphorical Red Sea, through your faith in the blood that was shed for you and entering into the passing through of the waters of baptism, then today I want to invite you into that, to put your faith, your trust, and your hope in Jesus who loves you from the very beginning, who has a plan for you, who is angry that you have still chosen to be a slave to sin when he has paid the price to set you free. Your deliverer has came and he has conquered and he has made a way out for you. And today, if you want to be free of sin's bondage, and you want to pass through the waters of baptism in faith to him, I want to invite you to do that. As the band gets ready to come up and sing, I'll be back there in the back, and I'd love to, to pray with you and to invite you into baptism even today so that you can put your hope, your faith, and your trust in him and let him from this moment forward fight for you until kingdom come. For the rest of us in the room, we're going to receive communion. And communion is a reminder, guys, that what has been done for me, oh, this sounds so stupid. What has been done for me has been done for me. You don't work towards communion. You work from communion. We don't take communion hoping that by eating this magical nutrients, I'm going to get more faith somehow. Communion is not about us getting more faith. Communion is about us recalibrating our faith to make sure that whether it's a lot or a little, it is fully on Jesus and what he did through his broken body and his shed blood. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for what you're doing here in your church. Guide us deeper into a relationship with you and to those who are afraid right now to surrender to you. conquer their fear with faith. Father, I know that you tell us in your word, faith is a gift from you, and I pray that today that they would receive it with open hands. Open hands of surrender. That you would lead some of my friends here today into the waters of baptism. That through the water and the blood, there would be freedom.
and that you would pay back the years that they lived in slave to sin. That they would know that they are a child, a child of God. In your name.